Father, as we reflect on your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you're saying to your church. Help us to uh, know more about who you are and what it means to follow you, our Saviour and Lord, and the God of, with whom, of whom there is no other person or thing like. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you have probably heard of Shane Warne. Uh, he is uh, one of a kind. Uh, he played 145 tests for Australia, cricket tests, uh, for those who are not tracking. Um, he uh, got 708 wickets at an average of 25.41, which is pretty good uh, for a spin bowler. Uh, famously, surely everyone knows about the Gatting ball, but maybe not YouTube it when you get home. Uh, stunning piece of cricket uh, where he bowls uh, Gat, Mr Gatting around his legs. Uh, and then when he retired uh, in about 2000 and... Well, I should have written down that number, but when he retired, whenever that was, 2005-ish, uh, Captain Ricky Ponting described it as the end of an era. And I can remember... Uh, when he retired, feeling a little bit aggrieved that I was never going to be able to probably ever again in my lifetime see someone who was that good at spin bowling uh, bowl again. Now, there's lots of things that, about Shane Warne that I'd like to never see again. Um, but when it comes to cricket, uh, he was indeed one of a kind uh, because he didn't chuck it like his nearest rival. But uh, for those who follow cricket, uh, we, can we can debate that uh, at a later day. Well, why am I talking about one-of-a-kinds? Well, because uh, it's a big theme here in Isaiah 45, and in fact, in this whole section of Isaiah, God is God and there is no other like him. In fact, even greater than uh, and more unique than Shane Warne, because there are a few people in his footsteps who might be comparable or perhaps even debatably better. God's not like that. He's not like the slightly better God of whom there are uh, near rivals. He is well and truly above and beyond. But before we consider more about what that means, uh, I think it's important that we consider the context of where this fits. When we're, when we're, when we're doing three weeks in a book that's got 66 chapters, um, context is key. And so uh, Isaiah as a book is generally believed to kind of neatly fall into two parts. There's the first 39 chapters and then the second 26 chapters. So 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66. And what we actually see if you sit down and read Isaiah uh, is that uh, Isaiah receives two commissions. So in chapter 6 of Isaiah, uh, he gets a commission to bring a message of judgment. So the first half, or slightly more than half of the book, concerns this commission of Isaiah the prophet talking about the judgment that is going to come on Israel because of their idolatry and their sin. But in chapter 40, things kind of change a bit. And uh, having spoken of the judgment that will come, he moves to talk of the hope after judgment, of uh, the comfort uh, that God is going to bring his people in restoring them uh, from that place of exile. So they're the, 
the two halves. And uh, as one commentator, I recommend him highly if you want to ever get your head around Isaiah. His uh, name is Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. He says that this second half from chapter 40 and where our reading chapter 45 comes from uh, is essentially asking these two questions. Given that God has sent his people into exile and judged them for their sin, can God restore his people and does he want to restore his people? Is it possible to, for the people of God to, to be restored and does God even want to do it, even if it is possible? And of course, what we see as the chapters unfold is the answer, of course, is yes. But the answer is not yes because God's people are special, because God's people are worth saving, because um, God's people can do their time and earn their way back in. No, the answer, particularly as we see through verse chapters 40 to 48, is partly found in the fact that God is this unique God, uh, one with whom there is no one like. And uh, that uniqueness of God is borne out in our reading today, isn't it? We hear it actually stated, so verse 5, chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Here is God's uh, otherness, and we see it because of his grace. <laughs> he, because he is so uh, different and, and, and there is none like him, uh, even though his people have been exiled, in his grace he will come to strengthen them. But it's not just that, his grace that makes him unique. We see other things too. So uh, verses, uh, 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 verses 18 to 20, um, we see that he is the creator. And uh, verse 7 as well. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. Uh, or verses 18 to 20, this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God, he who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Uh, no one else did that. There's no one else who can create things out of nothing. But God can. And not only is he a God of grace, unlike any other God, not only is he the God who creates, unlike any other God, he also is the God who saves, verse 21. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Saviour. There is none but me. A God of grace, a God of creation, a God of salvation and a God who is in control. We see that in verses 11 to 14. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. I made the earth, I stretched out my hands and I will raise up Cyrus. I know what's going to happen and in fact I'm going to make it happen. I'm in control of this world. God is the only sovereign, gracious creator and saviour that there is. This is the unique God whom the people of God need to put their trust in, who we need to put our trust in. And what we learn uh, in this section of Isaiah, these chapter uh, sort of from verse 40, is that although God has punished Israel, sent them to Babylon, God is also going to save and restore them. That, that's in his nature, that's why he's so different. 
But we also see that the salvation that God is going to bring is going to be a salvation that comes not just to His people, but through uh, His people to the world. So we see in verses 20 through 24 of our reading today, uh, sorry, which came just after our reading today, Gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nation. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together, who foretold this long ago, who declared it from distant past. Was it not I the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Saviour, there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God, in his sovereign power and wisdom, has decided that through uh, bringing uh, the people of God out of exile, uh, he is going to then extend salvation to the world. The question is, how does he do that? And of course, uh, I haven't touched on it yet, but you would have heard it in the reading, and if you can see chapter 45 in front of you on your phone or on a Bible, you, you'll see that there's this character called Cyrus. Uh, God is not the only character who's described in, in verse 45. We see his, his, his sovereign power, his, his desire to save, uh, his power to create, all those things about God described in this chapter and in this whole section. But we also meet this character called Cyrus. So who is Cyrus? Well, he's there in verse 1, isn't he, of chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, first thing I want to say about this Cyrus fellow is that unlike God, uh, who uh, is unique and whom there is none other, Cyrus is different. Cyrus, in fact, is not unique. In fact, he points us somewhere else, to someone a bit like him, only greater. You see, in verse 1, as we're introduced to Cyrus, we read those, those words, the, the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Now, an anointed one is, uh, that's an interesting phrase uh, for us to read there. Uh, because what we see is that uh, God is uh, showing us here that uh, he anoints people for the task of bringing salvation. But we'll come to that in a moment. Let, let, let's just park that, uh, that, that thought for a moment and just focus on the actual person of Cyrus. We know that Cyrus doesn't show up until some 200 years after Isaiah is believed to have delivered this prophecy. And uh, as, he's, as he uh, is presented to us as the anointed one, and of course, anointed is, uh, another, wo is another word for uh, Messiah. So Isaiah says that coming in the future is, is an anointed one called Cyrus or, or a, a Messiah called Cyrus. Now, when I preached this sermon on Wednesday at our Wednesday service, um, 
using the language of Messiah about someone other than Jesus was raised to me as being slightly potentially problematic. And let me just address that for a moment uh, in case you're like, what, there's two Messiahs? Uh, the Bible uses language that we use for Jesus for other people a lot. Um, so it talks about kings. Uh, and we all know that there are people who fulfill the role of king for the people of God, David, Solomon, etc. And yet Jesus is the true king. Uh, we know that there are prophets like Isaiah who speak the word of God to people, and yet Jesus is the, the true prophet, the word of God made flesh. And likewise, with Messiahs, uh, we see that the, the, the Bible uses the word Messiah or the anointed one of God to describe people who are anointed by God or given a task by God to achieve. And the fact that, they, that the word is used to describe Cyrus doesn't mean Jesus is not the son of God who came to save the world. It simply means that we can better understand what it means for him to be the Messiah because we've had our minds prepared in the Old Testament to understand what that job is like. Does that kind of make sense? So, so the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus by using some of the words that, uh, and the roles that Jesus will fulfil in completeness that, to describe uh, others who partially fulfil the role or who are, who are types, or to use the language of the book of Hebrews, shadows of what was to come, uh, of the true reality. So I hope that's helpful. Feel free to leave a comment on Facebook or ask me afterwards if you uh, have more issues. But what we have in Cyrus is, a, is an anointed one of God, one who is being sent by God to save. But what's interesting about Cyrus is uh, he, he's not a member of Israel. So back in chapter 41, verse 2, we read that this Cyrus is going to be a king from the east, and we know, because history has passed, that he was an Assyrian king who was sympathetic to exiled Israelites. And so that causes some uh, problems for people. Because this Messiah, who with the help of God, we read in verses 1 to 3, is going to deliver the people, uh, he's going to do that as, as, a, as a pagan... And what we learn here is that God's people uh, can, can find themselves caught up in the wrong things when it comes to responding to the work God is doing through those he anoints. You see, for many of the Israelites, the fact that Cyrus is from the east, is an Assyrian king, is a pagan, that's a big problem. And if you read verses 9 through 13, you see God actually explaining that he is not required to conform to their small-minded expectations. There's, all, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quiet objection that, the, that, that God is answering when he talks about, uh, does, the potter say to the, does the, the pot say to the potter, what are you doing? God is he's saying, I'm not required to conform to your small-minded expectations. And so that response that people were having in that moment 
to, to the promise of God's, God's anointed one coming to bring salvation from the east for God's people and the rejection that that idea had from the people of God, even though it was plainly there uh, and described by God in his word, ought to remind us of something that happened a little later on when the true Messiah comes in, that, uh, in Bethlehem. God does not always work in the ways in which we think he ought to. Using a pagan king was not part of the plan, so God's people thought in Isaiah's day, and yet there is no one like God, and that is how he chose to do it. And when we remember that God acted in an unexpected way with Cyrus, it ought to prepare us when God acts in an unexpectedly expected way with Jesus. The Messiah comes to us as a saviour in a lowly stable and it's unexpectedly expected. It's God working not as the people of his day thought he would, though if they'd carefully read the scriptures, they might have expected it. But when they got caught up in their own way of thinking and their own way of assuming, they totally missed the boat. God is a God who brings salvation. Cyrus brings the people out of exile back to the promised land, but we know from the story that it, it doesn't quite achieve all that it, it, it was hoped. The, 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 when we read in Ezra and Nehemiah of their return, it, it's less than ideal. And so we see that Isaiah 45 still is pointing to to, to another Messiah who's going to bring true salvation, salvation to the ends of the earth, to Jesus. And so our response needs to be to come to the Messiah. For God promises that if we don't turn to him for our salvation, then the, uh, the other option is shame. Verse 24, all who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. There's only two options with God. Salvation or shame, judgment. There's no middle ground. And the day will come when Jesus returns... And instead of being put to shame, I pray that will be the day you find your salvation fully realised. We live in a world that doesn't know what to do with shame. People feel... Um, uh, that pe when, when someone does a shameful thing, the only thing we can do is is cancel them. But that doesn't deal with your shame. The only way to avoid shame is to come to the, to the Saviour. He's one of a kind. He created you. He's in charge. 
and he sent his son, his Messiah, into the world to save you. This passage is encouraging us today to humble ourselves and to trust in God's anointed saviour. Not Cyrus, but the one whom Cyrus points us to, Jesus, who came at Christmas to bring salvation to the world and who will come again to bring, out, to bring us into our eternal homes and to put to shame all those who don't trust in him. Don't let that happen to you. Prepare yourself now by trusting in him and receiving salvation. Let me finish with the words of the Apostle John. Famous words, but words nonetheless that so uh, aptly sum things up. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, will not be put to shame, but will have eternal life. Amen.